0: Hello, I'm Mike Penny.
1: And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I'll be reading the scriptures being quoted. And I'm William Henry. This is
2: our second podcast on Luke's Gospel, and this time we're going to be looking at the early life of the Lord Jesus before he started his ministry. Now, Luke actually tells us a lot more about the events surrounding the Lord's earthly life than Matthew does.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. Neither Mark nor John say anything about our Lord's earthly childhood? Yeah, so Luke begins the story
2: of Jesus with Gabriel visiting Mary to tell her that she's going to have a baby. So here's Mary, a a young girl engaged to Joseph, who seems to be a good bit older. And Joseph was a descendant of David, and they were living in Nazareth. And Gabriel tells Mary a few very important things about this baby.
1: You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay. 31 to 33 and 35.
0: All right. So we saw in the first podcast in this series, when Gabriel told Zechariah that he and his wife were to have John the Baptist, there was a very strong emphasis on Israel. And here also, there's the same emphasis in what the angel told Mary. For instance, he said her son was to be given the throne of his father, David, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob and that his kingdom would never end. (coughs) Also, Gabriel told her her child would be called Son of the Most High and the Son of God.
2: Yeah, because the pregnancy came about by the work of the Holy Spirit, not Joseph.
0: Yeah, that's right. And also straight away, um, Luke seems to establish links between Jesus and John the Baptist. I mean, both births are only a few months apart and both births are announced by Gabriel, and Gabriel actually tells Mary about Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, the unborn baby in Elizabeth's womb jump for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. Well, you would expect a close link between them because John
2: was the forerunner of the Messiah, was he not? He was to mm. go before the Lord to prepare a way for him, as Zechariah says in his prophecy statement in Luke chapter 2.
0: Yeah. When when Luke describes the birth of Jesus, though, he describes it quite differently from the way Matthew does. Instead of grand and glorious wise men from the east, when Matthew talks about it, that's what he says. Luke, on the other hand, reveals that the birth is announced to the shepherds in fields around Bethlehem. And they went to see the newborn baby while he was still lying in the manger.
2: Yeah, it's not exactly clear where Mary, Joseph and the baby actually were. I mean, traditionally, they were in a stable, weren't they? Because there was no room for them in the inn. But it doesn't actually say they were in a stable. And they could have been in a poor home where the animals were under the same roof as the family. I suppose, on the other hand, also, they could have been in a cave of some kind.
0: Well, wherever they were, the whole experience speaks of poverty, poverty. You know, and that the son of the most high should be born in a situation like that really shows the condescension of God. And Paul obviously appreciated this because in Philippians chapter two, he says that the Lord made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And you can see that right at his birth, right at the very start in the circumstances into which he was born.
2: Yeah, I think God really does things differently, doesn't he? His Mm. son is born in poverty. And the first people to hear about his birth were the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem. And shepherds in those days were really considered to be the lowest of the low Mm. socially anyway. Because they were out in the fields all the time, they tended not to observe much of the ceremonial law, which was really, I think, very important to the people. And they also had an extremely dodgy reputation. You had to be very careful if there were shepherds around. And yet it was to these men that the angels came to announce the birth of the Son of God. As we said before, of course, Luke loves to bring in the outsider.
0: Yeah, but Luke also gives some details of the personal encounters certain people had with the baby Jesus, which are not recorded in the other Gospels.
2: Yeah, Luke's really fond of kind of human interest stories. Several of Jesus' parables in Luke are like that. You know, the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son as well. And he tells us all about Zacchaeus and his story of climbing the tree.
0: Well, yeah, okay. But but let's get back to the early life of the Lord, shall we? In John chapter 2, Luke describes Mary and Joseph taking the baby Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple to present him to the Lord and make a sacrifice according to the law of Moses. You know, it shows that they were quite poor because that sacrifice, they brought just two young pigeons.
2: Yeah, well, they they may have been poor, but they must have been very devout people because they had the baby circumcised on the eighth day, as the law demanded. And then they waited until both Mary and Joseph were ritually clean after the birth. And then they presented him to the Lord and made their sacrifice. So they were very careful to follow all that the law asked.
0: Yep, that's true. That's true. However, when they they came into the temple in Jerusalem, they met two people. First, a man called Simeon and then a lady called Anna. This is how Luke introduces Simeon in Luke 2, 25 to 26.
1: Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ?
2: That's the Messiah, the one the Lord would send to Israel. The angels, I think, had introduced him to the shepherds as Christ the Lord, and here it's turned round to the Lord's Christ. And what? Simeon was waiting for was the consolation of Israel but what did he say when he actually met Jesus?
1: Sovereign Lord as you've promised you now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's Luke 2 29
0: to 32. Oh so Simeon was now ready to die because the Lord had kept his promise. And he describes Jesus as your salvation, i.e. God's salvation. And that means, I think, the means by which God would provide salvation for his people.
2: Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it, that the Gentile Luke highlights the role of Jesus as both a light for the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So what about Anna then?
0: Well, Anna is called a prophetess. She's an elderly widow who practically lived in the temple, probably in the court of women, uh, through which Joseph would have had to pass to gain access to the court of men where he could hand over the two young pigeons to the priest. Luke 2.38 says this about Anna.
1: Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem.
0: Ah, Jerusalem. So again, we see the focus is on Jerusalem and the nation of
2: Israel. You know, it's interesting to think of what Jesus must have been like as a child, isn't it? Luke concludes this section by saying
1: this. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's Luke 2.40. So then, at what point do you think Jesus was aware of who he was
2: and what his destiny was?
0: Oh, well, oh, thanks, Will. That's, that's impossible to answer, isn't it, eh? Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> Why however, it,
2: yeah.
0: However, he must have been protected by the Holy Spirit as he grew up. But Luke gives us another incident which is not in any of the other Gospels. And that happened when the Lord was about 12 years old. And it is clear that by then, he knew who his father was, God, rather than Joseph.
2: Yeah, that's right. He'd gone up to uh, Jerusalem for their annual trip with the family for Passover, but he stayed behind in Jerusalem after the family had left. And when they eventually found him in the temple, We read this in Luke
1: 2, verses 46 to 49. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's
0: house? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? He described the temple as my father's house rather than God's house. And that made it a much more personal statement, didn't it? And it shows by the age of 12, he was well aware of his special relationship with the father.
2: Yeah, and in verse 50, Luke tells us that his parents didn't understand what he was saying to them.
0: Well, it's hardly surprising, I suppose. It was an awful lot for them to take in. I mean, mind you, they knew that the child was special. After all, Gabriel had told Mary that this miraculously conceived baby was to be called the Son of God, and that her son, was to be given the throne of his father, David, and he would reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom would never end. But then there was the visit to Elizabeth where the baby leapt in her womb. Then they had the visit of the shepherds who told them about the choir of angels. And then they had the visit of the Magi who told them about the special star. Matthew tells us about that. Then there was the meetings with Simeon and Anna and what they said, which we've just mentioned. Then they had to flee and escape Herod, rushing off to Egypt, again, as Matthew tells us. And now we read of this 12-year-old discussing theology with the teachers in the temple and describing God as his own father. Yeah, that's quite a bit to take in, isn't
2: it? (coughs) It certainly is, isn't it? There's a lot to take on board there. And in in chapter 2 of Luke, twice in verses 19 and 51, Luke says that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. And Luke sums up the development of Jesus by saying this in verses 51 to 52.
1: Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Yeah. But
0: then in chapter three, Luke gives a genealogy of Jesus going right back to Adam.
2: Oh, gosh, that's just a long list of names. A lot of people find that pretty boring.
0: Well, but but it's not boring, you know, it's quite important and interesting because it shows Jesus' line from Joseph through David and Abraham right back to the beginning, to Adam. If you look at Matthew, Matthew also gives us a genealogy, but he starts at Abraham and works forward to Joseph. And Matthew subdivides his genealogy into three important sections, important from the Jewish point of view covering the periods Abraham to David, then David to Israel's exile in Babylon, and then finally from the exile to the birth of Christ. And each section has 14 generations. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose that
2: since Matthew was writing to Jews, he would want to highlight these important characters and these key important events in Israel's history. But, I mean, I reckon that Luke, who was writing to Gentiles, didn't need to do that. So he traces Jesus back to Adam, who was the father of all nations.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. But the two genealogies aren't the same. The two Gospels are identical from Abraham to David. But after that, they split. There's a couple of names in common. After that, uh, Zerubbabel and his father, Shealtiel. But apart from that, the names in Luke's list are all unknown people.
2: So
0: what do you think are the reasons for the differences then? Oh, I don't know. Hard to say. There there are different explanations. I I just mentioned two. Some people have suggested that Luke lists the physical antecedents while Matthew gives David's legal offspring. In other words, those who would have been on the throne if the monarchy had continued. As I say, I'm not sure if that's correct. A, A simpler idea is that Luke shows Mary's line well, Matthew shows Joseph's line, that's simpler and I prefer it and probably more likely.
2: So where does Luke go after the genealogy then?
0: Oh, by the time we get to chapter three in Luke, Jesus has grown up and John the Baptist has started his ministry, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming and urging the people to repent and be baptized in preparation for this. Luke records Jesus' baptism very briefly. In just two verses in Luke 3, 21 to 22.
1: When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased.
2: So there we have got all three members of the Trinity present, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father stating his approval of his son. So that really must have been the public commissioning of Jesus for his ministry.
0: Yeah, I think so. But before he began his ministry, there was one more stage he had to go through, being tempted, or probably better, rather being tested by Satan in the wilderness. We get this at the start of Luke chapter four.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That that Luke makes it clear that this testing was prompted or initiated by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Matthew and Mark also point this out. Luke chapter four, verse
1: one says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days, He was tempted by
0: the devil. So the intention here was to test him, to see if he was ready for his ministry. There there must have been some chance, some real chance of him failing the test, otherwise what was the point? This wasn't just play acting, Satan was really trying to trip him up. And it's interesting, Hebrews 5.15 says this,
1: For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin.
2: So, so I guess that this wasn't the only time he was tested. I think Matthew chapter 4, verse 2 suggests that it was after 40 days of starving and fasting in the wilderness that, Jesus, that Satan came and tested him. But Mark and Luke seem to indicate that he was tempted throughout that 40 day period. Luke chapter 4, verse 1, which we read a moment ago, makes that clear.
0: Okay, so what was the point of these temptations? What was the point of this testing? Um, What was the significance of it all?
2: Well, the details are given in Matthew and Luke. There seem to have been three temptations. Luke
1: chapter 4, verse 3 tells us about the first one. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become
0: bread. Oh, that's a challenge. If you are the Son of God, was Satan actually questioning whether or not Jesus really was the Son of God, do you think? No,
2: I don't think he was really challenging that. He knew very well that Jesus is the Son of God. I think it kind of follows on from Jesus' baptism, because there the Father has just declared, you are my Son, whom I love. So I think that Satan was really saying with a kind of sneer, "Okay, son of God, why not use your power to help yourself? You're hungry. Make some bread.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. The sense really is since you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I think that was really the point. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Questioning what sort of Messiah Jesus was going to be, I suppose. One who would use his powers to help himself and make his life easier or one devoted to others?
2: Yeah, Jesus replied by quoting the scripture to him. This is in Luke 4, verse
1: 4. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone.
0: Okay, so we sort of understand the first temptation, So, but um, what was the second temptation?
2: Well, the second temptation was connected with worship. Luke 4, verses 5 to 7 say this.
1: The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours.
0: Oh, God, that that sounds pretty arrogant of Satan, claiming that all the glory and splendor of the world had been given to him.
2: Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't contradict him. He doesn't tell him, no, you don't have that power. He just Hmm. leaves it. Three times, I think, in John's Gospel, the Lord refers to Satan as the prince of this world. Paul describes him as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. So Satan does hold a lot of power in this world. So it looks as if he did have the ability to give all these things to Jesus.
0: You know, that must have been quite a temptation, quite a test, because Revelation tells us that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ. But this temptation by Satan was how to get it all the easy way. No pain, no suffering, no cross, no death. But at what cost? Always being second to Satan and worshiping him.
2: Yeah, Jesus was very certain about where worship should be given. He makes it clear in
1: verse 8 of Luke 4. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only.
0: Yes, yes, that's true. That's dead right. Anyway, okay, so we've looked at that second one. Now, what about the third temptation?
2: Well, the third temptation was to do a flashy miracle, which would impress the people and get him a big following. Verses 9 to 11 of Luke 4 describe it.
1: The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone.
0: Yeah, that could be really dangerous. And, and I see how I notice you that uh, Satan quoted Scripture of the Lord. I, I think the words came from Psalm ninety-one.
2: Yeah, that's right. Satan knows the Scriptures too. We better not forget that. But the thing is that he was quoting Psalm ninety-one out of context. That the Psalm, that Psalm there, is about how the Lord looks after those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. The psalm is not about those who test that God is with them by putting themselves in danger just to see if he'll get them out of it.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. But how did Jesus respond to Satan on this occasion?
1: Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Luke 4.12.
2: So the Lord came through these three tests with flying colours, I think. It's interesting that he answered each of Satan's tests by quoting scripture.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a lesson uh, for us in that, which we'll come to a little later, I think. But you know, uh, Christ is called the second Adam by some people, and they suggest a parallel between Christ's temptations in the wilderness and those in the Garden of Eden. Adam failed because he did not obey the commandment of the Lord, whereas Christ simply stuck to the commandments and so overcame the temptations. That's one view. However, I think you see a different parallel, maybe a better one.
2: Yeah, I think there's more to it. I think the Lord's testing in the wilderness can easily be compared to Israel's testing after they left Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness being tested for 40 years. The Lord's testing was 40 days. So again, you can see the the similarity there. But I think there's more than that, because when you look at the scripture passages that the Lord quoted, they're all taken from Deuteronomy, chapter six or chapter eight. And in that section of Deuteronomy, Moses reminded the Israelites of all that God had done for them. And he warned them not to turn away from him when they reached the promised land.
0: Yeah, but sadly, that warning was not um, taken into account. It certainly was necessary, but they quite soon fail to obey the law.
2: Right, and Moses says this to them in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2.
1: Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And when you look at the three tests that the Lord was given here in, in Luke,
2: You can see that they related to the ways in which Israel was tested in the wilderness. I mean, first of all, the Lord led them and gave them manna to eat, to teach them to rely on him and that they didn't live on bread alone. But they never really learned that lesson and they repeatedly failed to trust him for their needs. Then secondly, one of the greatest failings of Israel at that time was their unwillingness to worship only the Lord.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. There was that golden calf incident in the wilderness quite soon, wasn't it? Yeah. Quite soon after they came into the land. And then when they got into the land, they turned to the gods of the Canaanites and forgot the Lord and all that he had done for them.
2: Right. And then finally, their lack of trust showed itself when they demanded that Moses should prove whether the Lord was with them or not by producing water out of a rock.
0: Hmm. That was at Massa, wasn't it, which I think comes in Exodus 17?
2: Yeah, it was. So the three tests showed that the Lord succeeded where Israel failed. He depended on the Father alone. He would worship only the Father, and he did not need to put the Father to the test because he knew that he was with him.
0: Yes, that, that's true. But I think the Lord's temptations have more general applications to us as well as to the people of Israel. However, first, in one sense, these temptations that Jesus faced were really his own. We, we may not, we will never be offered the kingdoms of this oh, world.
2: Right.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we will be tested and we will be tempted. But note, first, Satan no doubt tailors our temptations to our weaknesses. The temptations we will undergo will depend what our weaknesses are but we can overcome our temptations in the same way the lord jesus did by knowing what the scriptures teach and following it that's the lesson for us i believe however all of us at times everyone at times all humanity at times have given into some temptation or other so jesus succeeded where the whole of humanity has failed
2: Yeah, and I think there's no doubt that this was by no means the only time Jesus was tempted by Satan. Because Luke finishes off this section in verse 13 by saying this.
1: When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time.
2: Yeah, so he was planning to come back and tempt him further when the time was suitable. So then after he was baptized, after he was commissioned for the work he was to do, the Lord was tested to see if he was ready to begin his ministry, and he was. So in our next podcast, we'll have a look at Luke's account of the early part of the Lord's ministry.